Geopolitics and Empire is joined by J. Michael Waller, who is president of Georgetown Research, a political risk and private intelligence company, senior analyst for strategy at the Center for Security Policy. He worked for the CIA in Central America. He received his military training as an insurgent with the Nicaraguan Democratic Force, the Contras. He did groundbreaking scholarship after the Soviet Empire's breakup and taught history and methods at America's premier intelligence schools. He's author of Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Uh, I just finished reading it here, the, the the digital version. I highly recommend it. Uh, welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Michael. It's great to be with you. Uh, you know, I've followed your work and commentary for years online, and it's great to be able to speak to you finally. I, I noticed your dissertation is titled The KGB and Its Successors Under Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin. Uh, a few years ago, I went to Russia on a trip, and I got to actually meet and shake hands with Gorbachev as well as people like Vladimir Posner. Uh, and again, your, your book, Big Intel, is a must-read. It's just out. Uh, but before getting into that, if you could just a bit... Tell us about your experience fighting with the Contras, getting your cryptonym from the CIA director at a Catholic mass. A pretty wild life uh, you've had. It was a lot of fun. And it was one of those things where you start out very young as, you're, as a college undergraduate and you really don't know what you're getting into and you don't understand the context all around you. It was really quite a time to be around then, too. When Imagine being a college freshman when Jimmy Carter's president and then Reagan is elected your first semester. And you're, you're casting a vote for him absentee from your dorm that's three blocks from the White House. So you're just in the middle of all of this. And then uh, so it's just a, if you if you like to make connections with people and, and uh, you know, get a good internship somewhere to start work, then there's no end to where you can end up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've had uh, on recently Brian Fairchild, former CIA officer who detailed his experience uh, as well. And so, you know, you get into that in some of your uh, some of that in, uh, in your book. And Big Intel has also made me start to rethink uh, some of our history. You know, I thought the Red Scare in America had been overblown, but, um, you know, given some of what you detail, maybe not uh, entirely. And you start by looking at the history of how Marxism began to take root uh, in America, which has led us to where we are uh, today. And so if you could tell us a bit about that and whether you think, you know, the Red Scare was to a degree warranted, uh, given, you know, how today Marxist subversives are attempting to take down America. Yeah, sort of the Red Scare was a, a name given to something the way people today, if they don't like your views, they call you a, a racist or a conspiracy theorist or something. So the Red Scare is a, an analog to that. There was plenty to be genuinely frightened about because, and there were two so-called Red Scares, one right after World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution, when there, were a, there was a huge wave of immigrants from Central Europe who came here with communist ideas, communist revolutionary organization. They were kicked out of their own countries or they were not free to, <clears throat> excuse me, not free to operate in their own countries. So they came to America and rather than becoming Americans, they remained to, to, true to their either communist or radical socialist or anarchist ideas to overthrow the country that took them in. So when by the end of World War II, we're finding there are whole networks of these people in the big coastal cities in Chicago and elsewhere. There was only one person in the Justice Department who had an office in charge of this, and this was a young law school grad still in his early 20s named John Edgar Hoover. So he started out, his first job in the Justice Department was to identify and round up foreigners who were anarchist or communist or radical socialists who wanted to overthrow us, round them up, and then deport them back to Russia. And you, you even detail because uh, I'm a, I'm a Croat. Uh, my parents come from uh, former Yugoslavia. You, you, you detail. I think it was Thomas Babin uh, in, in in the book, uh, uh, one of the subversives. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I did want to read a quote here. It's interesting. You you talk about Hoover. Uh, you you paint a measured picture of J. Edgar Hoover again, which makes me rethink who he was. Uh, and it seems our government back then protected us from agitators and today it actively works with them and employs them i'm thinking of people like alejandro uh, mayorkas of the dhs and some of the rest of the biden regime you know was watching clay higgins um a week ago talking about starting impeachment of 
uh, Mayorkas, and you write, quote, in 1918, Hoover earned a promotion to run the Alien Enemy Bureau to lead the fight against anarchists uh, and Marxists. He was 23. At least 6,500 German nationals sat confined in camps under his authority with another 450,000 under some kind of monitoring. And that uh, Congress amended immigration law to protect against foreign extremists wracking America. All aliens who disbelieve in or advocate or teach the overthrow by force or violence of the government of the U.S. shall be uh, deported. And so there's there seems to be quite the difference between back then and, and now, doesn't there? Yeah, I mean, this was Woodrow Wilson, of all people, you know, the 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 the, the crown prince of modern the king of modern progressivism who was doing this. And it was not a political partisan issue. It's like, yeah, these people are here to overthrow the nice system that we have where everybody agreed on American founding principles. And then these troublemakers from abroad are coming among the big masses of people who just want to be good Americans and they want to wreck it all for us. So yeah. the problem was though the laws were never sufficient to do the job properly because they're talking about overthrow of the government by violence. There, there were no laws about overthrowing the government by subversion. And this is where we look to see things like the Frankfurt School of Thought. It was a Bolshevik operation, a political operation, political warfare, to overthrow the Weimar German government, post-World War I government. So Germany was defeated. It was demoralized. It's, it was tearing itself apart with various factions of you know monarchist, uh, republic types, uh, socialist, anarchist, fascist, Nazi. Fascists were Italian, but you know they got their inspiration from that. And and so and then the far left factions were fighting among themselves. So the the Soviet idea was let's just um, wreck Germany, not through a Bolshevik style, you know, violent insurgency. Let's cause it to collapse on itself from within. Let's just destroy its culture, and then we'll come in and just take over but their problem was that hitler beat them to it and so they they fled before hitler cracked down on them went to paris went to switzerland went to the uk and then a lot of them came to the united states in a deal that was brokered with a soviet intelligence agent to have them set up shop at columbia university to teach the teachers and from there critical theory was developed that was one of the places where critical theory was developed to bring us what we have today with critical law theory and critical race theory and DEI and all that other stuff that's haunting us now. And and before getting more into that, something you mentioned in the book is Operation Trust. Uh, some of us learned about this um, during the whole QAnon phase, and some people have likened QAnon to have been uh, akin to Operation Trust. Uh, and, and, and any thoughts on Operation Trust and or QAnon? Well, Operation Trust, and I kind of take it in, in the book that I, I, you know, the communists are really evil. There's really few things besides the Nazism that's worse than than what the communists were doing and continue to want to do. But you have to admire them for their ability, for their strategic thinking. They were thinking in terms of decades and generations. They weren't just thinking about a next election cycle. So, so we have to think about that. How do how do we grapple with something like that that's so strategically minded? When they launched this critical theory operation, they said, this is going to take generations and we won't be alive to see it come to fruition. So back to Operation Trust, it was brilliant. This was the Bolsheviks had taken power in Russia. They hadn't yet consolidated control. There was a Russian civil war raging, all squabbling factions against the Soviets. And, and, so, and they were all looking for money. So what did the Bolsheviks do? They funded their mortal enemies. They funded their military opponents to get them to come back to Russia where they were living in exile, to get them to organize, to get them to become dependent. They had no idea that the, the, the opposition to the communists had no idea they were being funded by the Bolshevik secret police. The purpose was to for the, for the communist government to find all the networks. Who are they? Where are they? Bring them back into Russia and then exterminate them. Yeah, I mean, they're doing, unfortunately, incredible work. Uh, and then getting back to what you mentioned that the Frankfurt School, they shifted, you know, some of this class war paradigm, you write, quote, the cultural Marxist originalists would tear apart societies not by economic class, and the hard currency of capital, but by 
religion, law, race, family, tradition, knowledge, patriotism, um, and beliefs. And really, today, it's going wild with the sexual madness, the trans uh, LGBT stuff, the, the racial aspects, right, black versus white, um, the, the target of the family. And, you know, Marx did talk about in, in his writings, I believe, uh, you know, attacking the nuclear family. So you, uh, if you could tell us more about this Frankfurt School um, and how, you know, they've marched through our institutions. Yeah, well, we, we all think of Marx as some sort of deranged economist who had an economic revolution where the poor working masses would, you know, the, the proletariat would gather together and overthrow the rich French word, you know, bourgeoisie, the, the wealthy few. And that would be, that's how we all think of Marxism. But that was Marx in 1848 when he wrote the Communist Manifesto. So earlier in 1843, Marx focused not on economics, but on culture. How can we destroy everything? Destroy your sense of being, your nationhood, your community, your church, your religious faith, no matter what it was. Destroy it all. Pit the children against the parents and pit everybody against one another. All the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian heritage of Western society, tear it all apart. Tear apart everything that's good. So it was a, a nihilism that he was he was promoting. Nihilism is the Latin word for nothing. So it's nothingism to bring about this great revolution. And anyway, that didn't catch on. So he he then reverted to economics, and then that's how it it ended up. So this is what cultural Marxism is all about. You, you go to Wikipedia now, and somebody switched it from from what cultural Marxism really is to now it says cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. So it's all a big conspiracy theory, even though Marx wrote it himself, and you have a lot of Marxists who wrote about cultural Marxism. And that's what the Frankfurt School was done in Germany with Soviet Communist International coordination and with the head of the Soviet secret police presiding at the first meeting. And then when they went into exile with the rise of the Nazis, they came and they brought it to the United States. We didn't have anything like this before. So it was Herbert Marcuse and uh, Adorno and these other uh, cultural Marxists who then sit, thought, well, you know, Stalinism is not cool. It's not fun. It's bureaucratic. It's always whatever the Soviet line is we have to do. Let's have a real revolution and let's make it fun. Let's put drugs in it. Let's put sex in it. Let's put getting trashed in it. Let's just have a really fun time while we tear apart the society that's oppressing us. So it always became the oppressor versus the oppressed. So now it's moral values, family family values, religious values, patriotism. Those are all oppressors. And, oh, they were all made up by white guys. So white people are the oppressors and they're inher inherently oppressive. So this brings you to critical law theory where the, the constitution is oppressive. So we have to make it a living document to make it mean whatever we want. And then the white people who invented it were oppressive because they were racists and therefore had no moral values. And so our whole system is based on racism and hate and white supremacy. So we have to tear it all apart. So that's where you get Ibrahim Kendi and these other fanatics with their critical race theory that became the doctrinal base for diversity, equity, and inclusion that's permeated not just our, you know, everything that we can see in public, but permeated the FBI and the CIA as a core value. Yeah, yeah, you get into that um, in your book, and, and it's really all madness. You know, I grew up in the U.S. in a multi-ethnic, multiracial setting, uh, friends from all walks, and I never thought about these things and it's just like the all of blm crt dei stuff it's like they're obsessed with race and all these um uh, it's, it's like they're, they're the races pretty much uh and uh, of course you know we can't not mention yuri bezmanov who you discuss in the book you 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 talk about uh the soviet spy uh, ellis uh, his real achievement influencing the creation of american foreign intelligence you say stalin had his own form of globalism now, the new American foreign policy establishment had a globalist um, raison d'etre of its own. You talk about Soviet influence uh, operations. Uh, and, you know, Bezmenev, he was famously interviewed by G. Edward Griffin, uh, who, who took me, uh, Griffin took me out to lunch about a decade ago. I, I got to spend some time with him, and he's been a guest on this podcast. But if you could tell us more about what, um, you know, Bezmenev revealed, as well as other defectors, Soviet influence operations, subversion, um, and, and active measures. Yeah, well, it was really deep to see that Bezmenov's 
1984 interviews and and lectures had been preserved on video and put up on YouTube because there you could go back to a man who was a trained Soviet propagandist. He wasn't a KGB officer, so some of his detractors who want to deny the truth of anything, well, he wasn't KGB. No, he was better than a KGB officer because he was trained to be a Soviet propagandist and he was trained in psychological manipulation. So when he came, to, defected to the United States, moved to Canada and explained all of this, he put it not just so that it was he was right, right at the time, 40 years ago, but in retrospect, he was 100% on the mark. If you go through his various stages of how to destroy a society by, dis by doing exactly what the cultural Marxists are doing, you find that Bezmanov really was, was a, a political prophet in a sense. He, he, was, he, he foresaw everything that's happening to us because this was a Soviet operational science used to soften up societies to tear them down. And, and now the fact that, the fact that this was a Soviet, you know, and a KGB creation, critical theory, and everything Besmanov talked about, so it's a foreign subversion that the FBI, by law, is supposed to be fighting, and that the CIA was created to combat right after World War II, and they failed us. Now. They, the FBI didn't fail us at the time, and the early CIA was fighting this like crazy. J. Edgar Hoover was warning for decades about this. He could see it happening. And, you, and this, again, wasn't, a, wasn't something that I thought of to, I read all his speeches and testimony and articles and books and turned it into something new. I hadn't read most of those things. And then later on, I thought, yeah, I wonder what Hoover said about all of this and found, whoa, he's been, he had been warning about this since 1920. Which is why, as I said, as reading your book, I kind of uh, rethinking uh, Hoover because we're given this really negative view of him. Um, and he, as you point out, he had some some points. We were under threats. And, you know, I, I do have a burning question. I've had folks uh, on the podcast like Jeff Nyquist who posit that that there is, you know, we had um, forgetting the defector's name now that he talks about. I've, I've got his book, but that there has this been this long you know, century-long plan uh, that the Soviets faked their collapse. But, you know, d do you see a continuity from Excellent. Soviet Union to current Russian Federation in terms of these um, active measures? You know, is, 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 is the Kremlin today, you know, secretly closet um, globalist or Marxist? Uh, <laughs> any thoughts here? Well, not, not Marxist per se. So they don't have that, that, ideology that drives them anymore it's really become a thugocracy but if you had were there with your eyes open during the soviet collapse you could see it happening if you followed the laws if you followed who was getting promoted if you followed all of these things that were happening under gorbachev and glasnost he was designing a system to keep the kgb in place so when the soviet union collapsed when when and when boris yeltsin and ukraine and belarus seceded from the ussr Yeltsin in Russia had no political party. What did he need to keep in power? He needed the old KGB, so he kept it in power. He gave it places of privilege. They had laws saying that every joint venture with a foreign company had to have a KGB officer as one of its vice presidents. So you had KGB. So it was it was all laid out. There was no there was no um, looking back to to expose the archives, to expose the operations, to put certain people on trial or to just have some sort of an exposure and reconciliation. There was nothing like that. And the, and the uh, George H.W. Bush administration wasn't interested, and the Clinton administration wasn't interested in promoting this. So it was bipartisan. They didn't want these archives out. But if, unless, you, unless you expose the past and, and, and so that it can never be revived and those networks can never be preserved, you're going to repeat it. And that's precisely what happened with the rise of Putin and the KGB gangster state. So while the communist ideology is not still yet there, the communist methodology and the old KGB networks did survive. There was a former FBI agent, uh, Ralph Hope, who is a, was a German specialist, and he has a recent book called um, The Gray Men about the old East German Stasi networks and what happened. So if you figure East Germany collapsed a generation ago 1980 89 but the stasi network survived and they went private 
blackmailing people using those files. So you had Gerhard Schrader, the former chancellor of Germany, head of Germany's Gazprom. He was part of the part of the Nord Stream pipeline deal. He was instrumental. He was effectively a Soviet asset. And then the people that he brings in are his assets. So you have this continuation of this system with a Russian hand still behind it. And we we don't treat it like it's a continuum of the old Soviet KGB. So, so could we say, if we look at this oligarchy out there in, in, in Kremlin, um, that, you know, th this program has been continu continuing in the U.S., this Marxist, you know, subversion active measures. Do you think, you know, Putin is painted as this conservative uh, sometimes who speaks out against some of this, you know, satanic transgender madness, but do you think uh, the folks out there in the Kremlin are like sitting back and thinking, Oh, well, let's let this, you know, critical race theory and DEI play itself out uh, in America and, and take down our adversaries. Or, or do you think they'd be happy to see see um, that dealt with in the U U.S.? Well, yeah, I mean, just think if, if you're if your strategic adversary is destroying itself, you know, the last thing you want to do is intervene. Now, in looking at the research, I don't have any any evidence at all that there's a Russian present day Russian hand behind you know, DEI, but there was an old Soviet hand behind it for sure. It began as a Soviet covert operation and people like Herbert Marcuse, who's, who was a main figure in the new left and the, you know, uh, Obama even wrote in his own memoirs, how he studied closely under Marcuse and the people who raised him in Chicago politically were, were Marcuse followers. He had been a Soviet agent. Now, you go to the CIA website and it says he was a wonderful OSS intelligence officer for the United States during World War II. Yeah, but he was a communist penetration agent of the OSS. He was not, a, he was not an American patriot, but he was able to use that OSS credential for the, for the rest of his life. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm pretty much out there on the cultural side, but, but you know, I, still, I still served in World War II. No, 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 no. He served basically as a Soviet agent to infiltrate our system. When you have Soviet agents who, who create doctrines that then shape the worldviews of Americans who become attorneys general and senators and even a president of the United States and intelligence officers, that's a that's a hostile foreign penetration of our system that we should be protecting against and calling out. And that certainly was not done. So, however, though, if you look to get back to your point about you know a possible Russia hand. The same people who were pushing the Trump collusion narrative, Trump's a traitor, he's working for Putin, he's Putin's man, were the same ones who were wedded to the Sololinskys and the Herbert Marcuses and the critical theorists and cultural Marxists brought up through the old commentary. So there's something there that it's like a deflection point. They, these people were never anti-Soviet before, and all of a sudden they're anti-Russian today, and they see a under every bed so you talk about red scare they're doing a similar thing right now and they have been for the past you know couple election cycles to to but falsely with with no facts behind it simply simply slander to shut down other points of view and to to destroy uh, political people that they don't like yeah it's just crazy how the the tables turn uh and you also go into detail of you know the oss the FBI, you know, the OSS later, the CIA, how American intelligence was penetrated by communists, communist spies. You, you, you know, mentioned Pearl Harbor, how Moscow agents uh, in Washington steered policy uh, discussions and may have been involved in bringing Pearl Harbor uh, about. You know, I've, I've got the book by Robert Stinnett, uh, where, where, you know, former Navy man who uses declassified files. I'm of the belief that there were a few folks in the administration who knew Pearl Harbor was coming, but didn't say anything. But your uh, some of the info in your book makes me think, well, maybe some of those were, you know, communists who, who wanted to let it happen. But, you know, thoughts on that or just how deep the the communist penetration has been uh, in, in American intelligence and in military. Well, first, and this is the big deal about why someone's a communist and not just a leftist. Communist Party members had to take an oath of loyalty to the Soviet Union. And back pre-Pearl Harbor, they had to take a personal oath to Stalin. And to, to 
make the United States a basically another Soviet Republic. That was their oath to a foreign power. They go into our State Department, into Hollywood, into journalism, into, into World War II intelligence. They, they are willful, knowing, witting, controlled Soviet agents loyal to another country. They're not just liberals or lefties. So that's, that's a distinction that we have to make. And that's a distinction that a lot of liberal and lefty scholars have completely overlooked. So that's why they have terms like Red Scare or whatever. This is real Soviet penetration of our institutions. So when we went into World War II, we didn't have an intelligence service. It had to be set up right away. And they think, well, we need to fight the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese. We need people who are, st are from those countries, who speak those languages, who understand the dialects, who know people inside, who might have networks inside. Let's bring them in. Anybody to fight the Nazis. Well, the FBI was warning, wait a minute, you're bringing in Communist Party members who were loyal to Stalin. But you had other people like a great intelligence leader, the founder of U.S. foreign intelligence, General William Wild Bill Donovan. Really important figure in our history. But his one, his one fault was he didn't understand what the Soviet threat was to us internally because he viewed the Soviets as allies against Hitler. And he didn't look, as few, didn't, few looked at, what are the Soviets' plans for the world after the Axis enemy is defeated? Well, by the time we got into the war in 1943 comes around, Stalin realized, as did Churchill and, and even Roosevelt, it's just a matter of time before Hitler is defeated. Uh, the Soviets were not at war against Japan. They didn't want to have that second front across their 11 time zones. They wanted to focus all their resources on defeating the Nazis, which was great from a Western European point of view. And it was, it was good from a U.S. point of view, but we were now on two fronts in the war with Japan. The, but the Soviets had a goal starting really in 43 to shape the rest of the world. So that by the time the war is ending, coming to an end at the Yalta conference, President Roosevelt, who was really ill, had a cognitive decline also at the time, um, brought in as part of his delegation with Stalin in the Soviet Union, Soviet agents to advise him like Alger Hiss. And, and brought and kept out, wasn't Roosevelt who did it, but I mean, the people around him did, kept out the, the people who really knew the system, sort of liberal anti-communists like George Kennan, who was stationed at our embassy in Moscow. He knew the Soviet leadership better than anybody. And he was really an architect of our later post-Roosevelt uh, Cold War containment strategy. So you didn't have people who understood Soviet intentions advising the U.S., which is the reason why the U.S. just gave Stalin pretty much what he wanted at Yalta. Well, this shaped the whole rest of the world. It shaped yours and my lives. It shaped um, everybody because it brought along the Cold War and gave the Soviets their huge sphere of influence because the Soviets had penetrated our decision-making system and our intelligence system, and our leaders didn't understand it. But Hoover did, and he warned about it, which is why he comes across as such an unusual uh, hero in the book. He had plenty of faults, but when you're when you're leading Federal Bureau of Investigation for 48 years, and you have almost no laws limiting your powers, I mean, of course you're going to you're going to step over the line, and in you know, you're obviously going to do that, and and the more power you have, the more likely you are to abuse it. So yes, those things happen, but if you look at his motivations, he he. He understood exactly what needed to be done to defend the United States from foreign subversion. You mentioned in your book, um, you list some of Hoover's commandments, and um, they apply today. You know, some of the things include don't confuse liberals or progressives with communists. Don't let communists in, in your organizations uh, or labor out, union outwork, outvote or outnumber you. Don't be hoodwinked by communist propaganda that says one thing, but means destruction of the American way of life that's happening as we speak. Don't let communists infiltrate into our schools, churches, and, and uh, molders, shapers of public opinion, the press, radio, uh, and, and screen that's happening all over the place in, in churches um, today and in, in schools. I'm a former uh, educator, teacher, professor, uh, and I've seen that. Uh, and then you, uh, in your book, you detail how, you know, around the year 2000, things really come to a head that the CIA had mainstream sanitized Herbert Marcuse 
you know, you discussed the Patriot Act, all the changes that happened in the CIA, FBI, um, you know, likened to minority reports. Um, and, and, you know, thoughts on that. And then you even mentioned the DHS and, you know, something that happened to me two years ago, the Department of Homeland Security banned me personally from PayPal when they rolled out the disinformation, the now defunct disinformation governance board in April of 2022. Um, uh, you know, I figured out through the um, Mike Benz, his work and others that it was the DHS telling PayPal to ban me, a U.S. citizen, just for doing what we're doing now, which is completely insane. And so, um, you know, your your thoughts on on the year 2000 and, and how, you know, we got to where we are. Well, it's a strange finding. It's, it's part of the discovery when you do research. You'd never, you know, if somebody had told me, I would have thought it was crazy talk and, you know, put on a tinfoil hat and go, you know, go away. But looking at the powers that J. Edgar Hoover had, you know, Virtually no laws limiting his power. The secret files he had on politicians and presidents and you know so many others. He was far more restrained than the current FBI is, and even parts of the Department of Homeland Security. He was more restrained when it came to abusing power than the, our present-day security apparatus is. And that's really scary because he didn't have SWAT teams. FBI had no tactical units. He didn't have high tech access to to anything. He did during World War II, the Army Signal Corps, but he didn't have what the current FBI has and the databases that everybody has access to. So he didn't have an effect on the life of every American citizen. And then the FBI itself was structured so that the cases, the, the criminal cases or the investigations began from the field offices from the bottom down. Now there are 56 field offices around the, the country. Um, and so they were started at the bottom down, and then they would be, you know, coordinated or whatever from the top. Today, though, since 9-11, they can be initiated from the top and imposed from the bottom. So, so with this centralization, uh, centralization of our intelligence services and then the new centralization of the FBI. So, yeah, on one hand, Office of the Director of National Intelligence created after 9-11 to coordinate what were now 17 different intelligence agencies that had always been separated so they wouldn't abuse power and threaten our threaten our country. Um, they are now under the office of the director of national intelligence. The purpose was to avoid the stove piping. Like all the services are just passing information up through their own stove pipe and they weren't cross-pollinating. And that's how bin Laden got away with 9-11, you know, some might argue even persuasively so so there there had merit to that but what he ended and then adding 60 new management positions to the top of the fbi creating a giant top heavy bureaucracy that started running things now from the top down because president george w bush told fbi director Mueller after 9-11 who'd only been on the job for a week i never want to have another terrorist attack against americans in our country so Mueller said okay fine so he set up this system with bipartisan support and then the monstrous department of homeland security that merged all the security apparatus well that might be okay as a temporary measure when we've suffered a terrible attack like we did in 2001 but it set things up so that when obama came in office and his band of critical theory cultural marxist adherents came to office they imposed their critical theory from the top down because Bush had set it up in a centralized fashion. So they were easily able to manipulate it from the top. But at the same time, since mainly since 9-11, there had been a recruitment drive to, to hire so many new people with this new Department of Homeland Security in the FBI, in the CIA, that, well, they, these folks coming out of the American, you know, education system where now founding principles were a bad thing where basically cultural Marxism really dominated so much of American academia, and especially in the fields like law, like uh, national security, like foreign affairs, the pe exact people going to the Justice Department and the FBI and the CIA were imbued with this. And then over time, they began to outnumber the people, or at least outpower the people who just really had a sense of mission to, to be a good public servant and, and, and support Uncle Sam and, and the Constitution. So, so it was from the bottom up being recruited, and then from the top down, they would reach in and pull up these radicals uh, 
to positions of middle and upper management and then impose this across the whole national security apparatus. Yeah, you, you, you touch on that in your book. You, you go into it how the Obama era was really um, one of the defining moments when it comes to rolling all of this uh, stuff out. You, you list uh, a lot of people, everyone from Valerie Jarrett, Eric Holder, James Comey, uh, James Clapper. Um, and, and just, you know, one more thing, um, J6, you, you touch on, uh, you know, um, what happened January 6th. And it reminds me of an interview I had uh, here some years ago with, um, you know, leftist author Trevor Aronson, but he wrote a book called Terror Factory and how since 9-11, it kind of it kind of meshes with what you're saying here that he found since 9-11, most of the domestic terror so-called events in the U.S., they all had either FBI informants or FBI agents involved. And it was often the case where they'd find somebody who was, you know, not right mentally or into drugs and, and paid them money to kind of concoct, manufacture terrorism. And, you know, before they would carry out some terror event, the FBI would say, ah, we caught this guy when it was, in fact, the whole time the FBI uh, manufacturing this. And, you know, J6, I'm of the opinion, you know, Clay Higgins came out, he said that he, he's got a, a knowledge of at least 200 um, intelligence asset, FBI assets in the field during J6. There were unmarked white vans filled with these people. And so, you know, any, any thoughts on, you know, around the turn, you know, 2000, how um, a lot of this stuff now is being turned uh, inward toward, um, you know, I think honest, conservative, patriotic, uh, um, you know, even the left-wing U.S. citizens who want the best for America. It seems like we're we're not being targeted. Your thoughts on that and, and, and uh, J6? Yeah, and this is one of the dangers of when you have a bureaucracy that exists for the sake of existing as opposed to having a real mission. I mean, if, if, if they've accomplished their main mission, they don't need to be around anymore the way they were. But you have a whole, like Eisenhower warned of a military-industrial complex. You have an intelligence-industrial complex, too. So you put in your 30 years at the CIA, you can retire with pension, then you can set up a consulting company. So you, you get to pay yourself well, and then you get, you know, you know 10, 20, 50% markup for your services. So you're making a, a ton of money. So you're looking at that in your career. So, so if, if the problem is gone because you've done a good job or others have done a good job getting rid of the problem. You start having to find other problems, so you have this constant search of enemies. And then when you have it with woke, critical theory types coming in and they say, well, really, the real enemy is not jihadis. Remember, because we couldn't use that word. Um, might offend. The, the, the real threat is uh, white supremacists. Well, okay, let's, let's talk about it. What, what's, the, what's the issue? And how do you solve it? Are these federal crimes or is it a foreign power or whatever? But they start seeing now white supremacists under every rug and they, they see, you know, two Confederate battle flags by the Capitol, you know, on huge poles front and center during, during the January 6th uh, protest and riot. Well, having been, I've been to hundreds of these types of uh, different types of political events. And the only time you see big Confederate battle flags for everyone in the media and elsewhere to see is really a provocation from somebody else, whether it's a leftist, whether it's some other agent, they're trying to make everybody look terrible. So that wasn't at all representative, but that's what people are stuck with in their heads. Like that, that gallows with the noose that was three blocks from the Capitol. That wasn't even near the, the rioting, but the picture was taken with a lens to make it look like it was right up there in the middle of everything. So so this feeds the narrative, like with the disinformation thing that, that got you at DHS. These are people who see enemies among us, and then they apply labels that you can't escape from that kind of label. But they apply that and say, these people must be, if we can't hunt them down for breaking laws, we can at least make their lives miserable by putting them on blacklists, by putting them on other kinds of government lists, by by uh, by building files and collecting intelligence on them. And all of a sudden you have the un-J. Edgar Hoover type of thing where you have now someone without controls building files on people, uh, not because they're patriotic anti-Marxists who want to save our founding principles and all. Uh, they're quite the opposite. They're doing for the opposite reason. Now they might say, and they might even believe they're doing it to help America, but it's that kind of America that they want 
which is which is a critical theory America, cultural Marxist America. So that that operation that nailed you was so discredited that even the Biden administration had to shut it down, and they're trying to bring it back under some kind of camouflage. I I, I did manage to escape. I joke about this. I managed to escape their label because. I became a Mexican citizen, so now I'm a minority, uh, so I can't be white supremacist. I married a brown Mexican, uh, and so uh, if they say me, tell me anything, these these wokes, I just call them racist because I'm Mexican now. So <laughs> I well, managed. Agree, yeah, I had American Indian ancestors about 300 years ago, but so maybe I can identify as a as a American Indian or whatever they're calling them now, and and uh, and, and get whatever rights I have coming to me, but. Uh, uh, you play their own play their own right it's just it's just so idiotic but if you can you know i'm like a thousand times more indian than than elizabeth warren but really i mean how does that would be just total dishonesty for me to self-identify as a you know member of the wampanoag federation of massachusetts well, we just play, you know, we play their own game uh, against them, and it shows how ridiculous uh, it is. And I, I know you don't get into this um, in the book, but I did want to get your thought on the migrant crisis. Um, I mean, even Mexicans down here are saying it's 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 crazy. Like everyone's fed up with it. It's obvious that it's it's nuts. Uh, and I do see it as a weapon uh, of the same groups that you discuss um, in your book. Uh, and you know, I, I'm from Illinois originally. I, I grew up on the north side. And this morning I hear that a local politician in, in, in Naperville uh, in Illinois is urging um, folks in Naperville to take uh, migrants into their homes. Uh, I've had a, fr a friend of mine who's a street preacher on the Texas-Mexico uh, border call me up telling me, you know, he's seeing a thousand Russian men come in. There's videos now of Chinese coming in. Um, it's it's just too much. It's like a military tactic now to take down um the U.S., uh, you know, even uh, some of the liberal mayors we see in New York, uh, Chicago are saying cry they're crying, uncle, it's it's too much. Um, it, your thoughts on how this mass migration plays into uh, some of these strategies? Sure. But first, let's think of how this affects all of us. Y you've just said the word a few times. I say it, catch myself. They're not migrants, right? But yet we're, we're we've been acclimated to say the word before they were refugees or they were asylum seekers no they're illegal aliens that's what they always have been uh, if you're a foreigner you get a visa that says and you're a resident it says resident alien that's the name of it you're you're alien under the law meaning you're not from here and but you're illegally here so that's illegal alien we've said it for generations so these are illegal aliens coming up and when you think of the numbers at which they're coming up you know 15,000 a day that that's a US army division per day coming into our country. Now put your head, uh, get into the mind of our adversaries. What would you do if you were Xi Jinping or Hezbollah or the Iranian regime or Putin or anybody else? This is the greatest time to bring in infiltrators to the United States. No paperwork needed, no background needed. Do whatever you want. No one's going to be watching you. So if you wanted to, they have an advanced sapper force, which the Soviets had. They had Spetsnaz forces here, special operations, military forces in the United States to destroy our infrastructure and assassinate our officials in time of war. Why wouldn't the Chinese do this? Why wouldn't Hezbollah do this? So it's just common sense that this would happen as part of this you know, migration. Now you have this other uh, there's the, a theory, it's a, it's a political theory, to overwhelm a system, to tear it down by overwhelming it, by imposing so many social strains and financial strains on that system that people will, will turn against one another and the system will collapse itself. The fluid pivot. And, and this is what appears to be happening now. So you have cities and states that have legally declared themselves sanctuaries for illegal immigrants. If they're going to be coming in, fine, stick them there, but the rest of the taxpayers shouldn't pay because these jurisdictions said they're welcome in our jurisdictions. Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, wherever else, you know, Pacific Northwest. Then fine, ship them there and keep them there, but don't make the American taxpayer pay for it and then document everybody so they can be rounded up and sent home later. I'm very sympathetic to immigrants and immigration. So my 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 kids are all half Salvadoran. So I'm you know my but my father-in-law died waiting to become a u.s citizen legally so everybody has to wait their turn in line 
everybody has to be screened. Do we want burdens on our society? Why should we be funding any of that? We want people who are going to make our country better and better. And, and so, so when you have people brought in by the hundreds of thousands and millions who really add no value to our society, at least in the immediate term, why? who would be behind this? Why would they be behind it? And you mentioned, you mentioned uh, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Where was he born? Cuba, right? He was born in Cuba. His mother was from Romania. She fled communism to go to then, you know, anti-communist Cuba. His dad came from Greece, which was full of communists, and they'd been battling themselves in World War II, to, came to Cuba. Mayorkas was born in Cuba and then came as an infant to the United States. The thing is, Cuban-Americans his age, who, he's about my age, who came here as infants from Cuba, are really anti-communist, really hardcore, have no, um, no sympathy at all toward that regime, no tolerance toward it. But the ones who, the few that who are very tolerant about it and who do look the other way, like Mayorkas, you really have to wonder who got to them and how. This is not like an accident. This is not negligence. This is all calculated. Why is it calculated? We haven't established why. But it's so orchestrated that even when Texas says, okay, you know what? They're overrunning our state. We're going to keep them out of our state. And that now there's there's federal action and there right now it's just legal action. But what happens when what happens if Biden and Mayorkas send federal troops in to disarm Texas National Guard? to enforce the destruction of the barriers that the Texas National Guard is setting up. Are we going to get into a shooting situation where the central government is shooting Texas National Guard? Because that's where it looks like it might be headed. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions. Um, you know, you, you said we don't know why they're doing it, but the consequences, it's destroying the nation. And, you know, I've been to Russia and China and, you know, I, I've lived in Kazakhstan and, you know, the good luck trying to get into those countries uh yeah. Ill illegally right like the controls are very strict and you know even in kazakhstan uh, i got a knock on the door one evening it was a local authority like they actually come uh, he walks into the kitchen very nice dude and he was just making sure that i was actually living where i said i was living i mean th that's the level of of control you have in some of these countries um and uh so I, I did want to ask you about what, what you just mentioned. Some people are talking about, you know, the, we got these movies coming out now, Civil War, it's literally called, coming out in April. And it seems like, again, the establishment, these people you detail in your book, that they want polarization. They want us d d dividing, uh, divided and conquered. Uh, and some are talking about, you know, Civil War, again, a second American Civil War. Uh, what you just described in Texas, maybe being able to spark it off, you know, what's going on with, with Trump. You know, any, any any thoughts as to what we might, you know, the, the danger of that, or what else you, you worry about this this year and next? Yeah, well, you know, it's one thing when somebody in Hollywood writes a movie that's cool and provocative and gets people upset or or excited or whatever. That that's part of entertainment. But you've always we've always had our adversaries manipulating in, entertainment in Hollywood. I mean, Ronald Reagan, when he was head of the Screen Actors Guild as an actor testified before Congress right after World War II about communist infiltration of Hollywood then to change our way of thinking. But just imagine now some of this civil war, this popularization or fetishiz fetishization of civil war in America, it's being backed and even authored by a former president of the United States. Why? You've never heard Obama say, hey, we've got to put the brakes on this. It's going to tear our country apart. You've never heard him say that. He's been true to the upbringing of, of the old common turn man, Frank Marshall Davis, who, who mentored him as a boy all the way up till college. And then who mentored him in college and right out of college. And Bernadine Dorn and, and her husband, all mentoring Obama the whole way. Valerie Jarrett came from a Communist Party family, loyal to the Soviet Union. Red diaper baby, you know, as they call children of Communist Party members. She acted no differently from them. And then and she's their number one confidant. She would be the last person the Obamas would speak to practically every day. And she had unusual control over imposing 
critical theory, and wokeness and DEI across the government, including the CIA. Former CIA director Leon Panetta even mentioned this in his memoir. He didn't name names, but he said that the White House had un- wanted unusual control over everything going on in the CIA. So why would a former president be promoting and popularizing the idea of civil war in America? That really clicks. Leave the world behind, right? The Netflix movie. I haven't seen it yet, but um, it's yeah. I just kind of clicked as you put things together here. It's 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 pretty frightening. And you know, I, I had on former CIA officer Brian Fairchild. He was complaining how the CIA today is in shambles. It's not doing good work. It doesn't have any strategy. You say in your book, the CIA effectively died of COVID. um, And that uh, with another full presidential administration, the American intelligence community will be recovered or lost. After that point, it will matter little who's president. You say the CIA should basically be reformulated. uh, That since the FBI was founded with a short memo by an attorney general, it can also be dissolved with a short memo from a future attorney general and you you say the same for the dhs but uh, as you say first let's deal with the cia and uh, and fbi and so thoughts on what can be done uh it seems like we're at the precipice so how do we turn things around well you need a strong president who's going to do it but you need a coherently strong president who's going to do it that means he has to be consistent he has to come in with an agenda and a written action plan that's that is workable viable and a loyal team of people who trust each other and who can implement it. Now, that shouldn't be a big ask. You had, you know, Reagan came in with that kind of a team. Clinton came in with that that kind of a team. Uh, Obama came in with that kind of a team. Trump did not come in with that type of team the first time. We can hope all we want that he'll put together such a team this time. I don't see it happening yet, but, you know, there's a a long way between now and election day, but that, you know, if and when he's elected or allowed to be elected, he has to have that team already in place for his transition with the executive orders written. And then if, if he has a friendly house and Senate with the, with the laws written to put all this into law, so they cannot be reversed to decentralize everything the way it was before. We don't need all of this giant national security apparatus because it's not really national security. It is it is political surveillance and harassment and central control by people who have a penchant for central control. They want to control everything else in our lives. Why wouldn't they want to control this? All in the name of national security. And so you're putting national security in the hands of, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. And 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 the, the wannabes who, who are like him, whether they're in or out of government. Merging that with big data, merging that with popular culture in Hollywood, that all has to be dismantled so it can never harm us again. But that doesn't mean throwing out our counterintelligence capabilities against foreign spies or or fighting you know child trafficking or all of these other you know interstate crimes that are out there. We need all that stuff. We just don't need it in one centralized apparatus that can can be politicized against us. And the same with CIA. CIA does some great things. And and so in Big Intel, I wasn't bashing the CIA as a as an institution or the intelligence officers who are really doing what all of us benefit from as Americans. I'm going after the wokeness of it and the, the politicization of it and then the worthless personnel who are brought in. I mean, think of it, we can, we can't have focus on real threats abroad because so much money has to be diverted to management for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you go through all the CIA documentation, all the publicly available material from Obama, Trump, and Biden, because Trump let the CIA run itself, fortunately. Um, nowhere do they say in a convincing way that DEI is going to make for a better intelligence product and a more capable more robust CIA to go after our foreign enemies and defend our national interests. They're just saying it about equity, about inclusion, about looking more like America, not functioning. I mean, I'm, we need people with every kind of background and 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 trait. What your racial, a linguistic, cultural, um, you know, even cross dressers. We need them if we're going to infiltrate certain groups to to bust them up. Let's say there's a 
foreign network and you can compromise to say the Chinese ambassador to the UN or something because he's into that. Fine, you need people who <clears throat> who swing that way so they can help us defeat the enemy, but not to not to convert the culture of our whole intelligence community and then weaponize it against people, you know, parents at school board meetings who happen to disagree. Yeah, that's uh, pretty uh, funny. And, and, you know, one of my last questions, um, someone of your stature and experience, I, you, you mentioned foreign threats. Um, and, uh, you know, apart from the stuff we're talking about, the, the, the cultural insanity that we're battling, economic crisis, uh, talk of civil war, all the election madness, there's increasing talk of World War Three and um, our position uh, you know, the, the American empire abroad, it just seems to be declining. The, the rebels, the Houthi rebels don't even care anymore. They're not afraid. You see Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela saying, I'm not afraid of Washington anymore. I'm, I might annex my neighbor. Um, just any thoughts on, um, you think if we might be headed into conflict? Well, whenever America has weak leadership, that's when we get involved in wars. You you wouldn't have had Putin invading Ukraine had Trump been president. Because Trump was so unpredictable, the Russians couldn't put it into their calculus. So they would find a different way to do what they wanted to do, but it certainly wouldn't be that. So you look at the Russians invaded Ukraine under Obama, and they invaded Ukraine again under Biden. They didn't do anything under Trump because they can't put his, his uh, persona into their strategic planning. They don't know what he's going to do. So what do they? So they call him a Russian tool or whatever. The communist Chinese require predictability because of the nature of their system. Everything has to be predictable because they cannot adapt quickly. And it's a top-down system, so Xi Jinping has to sign off on everything. So this is where you have a, a leader like Trump who would keep them off balance simply because of his personality, not because of a grand strategy. But when then when he had a team like his Middle Eastern team, when he gave that Riyadh speech in early 17, Saudi Arabia, drive them out, drive the jihadis from your societies, drive them from your countries, drive them off this earth. And then he made a speech in Poland about how European and other countries should look after their own interests first, put themselves first, get rid of this globalism. And if we all put our own countries first, we're going to come to a lot of common agreement on a lot of things and we'll be strong friends and trading partners and allies. So Trump had this very unconventional way that the whole foreign policy establishment couldn't stand because it went completely against everything they were doing. But he was driving a stake in the heart of globalism and helping everybody just be proud of their countries again wherever they're from and and be sovereign but then work as teams so you didn't have the chinese adventurism by the chinese communist party the iranians were taken care of pretty fast when trump eliminated their revolutionary guard leader soleimani uh, but now you've got the iranian regime doing whatever it wants and you have what Houthi rebels how many americans even knew what they were a few months ago changing international trade routes because why because the u.s navy which was created to defend free trade routes, isn't allowed to do its job. So you get these Houthi rebels backed by the Iranian regime, now attacking shipping and raising our prices for everything and, and undermining our friends and allies. Like imagine, you know, Egypt, which its economy, its tourist economy has been destroyed through the jihadists and COVID. And so its big revenues are the tolls from the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal is basically shut down now because because ships aren't going through the Red Sea anymore and the, and the canal. So you have all these other things. And well, Egypt is really has a stake in, say, Israel being stable. But there's a move to push all the Palestinians into Egypt to destabilize Egypt further. I mean, in whose interest is that? It's in Iran's interest. It's in Qatar's interest, in the jihadist interest. It's in the Chinese communist interest. It's in the Russian interest. It's not in our interest for this to be happening. And that's only because the Biden administration is being weak or a fourth-rate player like Iran. Any final thought for us? Are you optimistic we'll be able to power through? Um, any final thoughts for us? I would like to be. I'm not really. I don't see where the... I think I think the, the, the system has become too rotten uh, only because it's gotten so huge. And you've had now uh, 
more than 20 years of sort of San Francisco types coming into the intelligence community with those, those values that just don't believe in our founding principles anymore. When you have an intelligence service that doesn't believe in American founding principles and it thinks that our country's founding is essentially evil, what are they doing defending our country if they think that way? This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is just a American founding principles issue. If you have an FBI that's embraced critical law theory and is imposing gender theory and queer theory on its personnel, telling them that if they want to get promoted, same as in the CIA, they have to be out there as allies of every stripe in that rainbow flag. And if they're not, they're being docked in their personnel record for not going along with this core value, as, as FBI Director Ray calls it, of the FBI. How can you have an, a, a good and trusted law enforcement service to say nothing of, of you know, provocations like with the Governor Whitmer case in, in Michigan and then the January 6th case where, you know, why didn't the FBI leader say when Senator Cruz and other senators asked, Senator Johnson and others asked point blank, did the FBI have any assets, yes or no, involved in criminal acts of violence, either planning them or executing them? at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The FBI director and his underlings who testified could have said, no, they were not involved in criminal acts of violence. They wouldn't even say no to that. They just said, I'm not going to say, or I can't say. Or, well, it's one thing to say how many were there, because there were there are reasons to have uh, FBI people and, and other law enforcement people running among groups that are going to cause violence and trouble. That's, that's understandable. If they're going to be breaking the law, um, then they have to have their eyes and ears out for that. But but Senator Cruz specifically said criminal acts of violence at the U.S. Capitol and the, and the top national security person in the FBI said, I'm not going to answer that. I can't answer that. And she knew that the questions were coming. Same with Director Ray. So, you know, Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, wasn't really involved in this until Ray lied to his face in a Senate hearing. And here he, these are the senators on the oversight committee. They're responsible for asking these questions. So the FBI is not denying anything. Which gets to a final point. When you get somebody like Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democrat leader in the Senate, warning about President Trump early in the Trump presidency that the intelligence community has six ways from Sunday to get you if you try to rein them in. What, he, what Schumer was literally saying is that the FBI and the CIA are states within a state. They're rogue agencies that not even the Senate and not even the president can control. And that the Senate or the president, regardless of party, has to roll over for them or they'll be destroyed. Well, this is a fundamental attack on our Constitution. If you have rogue agencies who can do this to people to the officials elected by the american people yeah i remember that clip and in some ways it seems like we are in america in uncharted territory let's hope uh michael that things that the tide does turn um all your links are in the description jmichaelwaller.com i find your twitter x feed a great resource and again highly recommend the book Big Intel, there it is uh, on screen, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Uh, get it, physical, digital copy. Thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Great to be here. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. 
You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.